What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. So it felt like, what would it be like? Like like if you overworked out something, maybe? I don't know. It was like really sore and tender, and it didn't feel right. And that was going for a bit. And I go, what is this? And I thought, oh, it's just some pain and 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 sometimes in life it is best to ignore pains they go away only they didn't go away that was playwright author and actor don cummings and he's talking about his penis not long after noticing those symptoms he realized he had pyrone's disease like pretty much all parts of the body the penis can develop health issues that can range from mild to severe But given cultural messages around sex, genitals, and gender, what it means for a cisgender man to have a, quote, imperfect penis, it's easy to feel shame or confusion. These things are talked about a lot more than they once were, thankfully, partly thanks to experts like Dr. Lamia Gabal. Dr. Gabal is a board-certified urologist with more than 20 years of experience in the field. We spoke recently about common penis problems, two of which we have explored here with true personal stories in years past. Today, you'll hear more highlights from those stories. You'll also hear Dr. Gabal's thoughts on common penis issues she treats in her office. More than anything, she said, she sees men who are struggling with erectile dysfunction. As a side note, Dr. Gabal has only treated a few transgender people through her years of working with so many folks, she told me she wishes she saw more in her office. Today, when you hear her referring to men, she's talking about cisgender men. Although the same issues can absolutely impact anyone with a penis, including ED, the inability to have an erection or keep it going during sex. Many men are afraid to talk about it because they don't realize that it's something that happens to everyone or almost everyone as they get older. She said that that fear of talking about it was even more prevalent during her residency at UC San Diego. There were no Viagra commercials on TV. In fact, Viagra wasn't even around yet. It was approved by the FDA to treat impotence in 1998 and became a near-instant success. The pills that cost $8 to $10 yielded about a billion dollars in sales in the first year. But it was a long time ago. And back then, um, you know, we thought, oh, erectile dysfunction is all in your head. And so men would come and, and some would want some treatment. And we had nothing really to offer them. The only thing we really had for more advanced erectile dysfunction, and we still offer these things now, but it's much more rare that we have to go there, would be injections for ED, uh, certain medications that can be injected into the penis, and then also uh, inflatable penile prostheses. Viagra and similar medications like Cialis enhance the effects of nitrous oxide in your body, a natural chemical that relaxes muscles in the penis and increases blood flow during arousal and erections. Injections stimulate blood flow too. 
When these treatments don't work and the cause seems physiological, your doctor might recommend a penis pump or implant. A pump involves a tube inserted into the penis. It uses a vacuum technique to draw blood in. Then you place a ring over the penis like a cock ring to keep it firm. There are different types of implants, Dr. Gabal said. They can be firm or malleable. She told me she's really grateful that Viagra is commonplace today. It's a household name like Kleenex. And I think they did us such a huge favor by bringing this out in the open. And it really just normalized it for men to be able to talk about it. Dr. Gabal pointed out that there have been many other advancements for treating ED in recent years, too such as shockwave treatments and the P-shot, which uses PRP therapy. Shockwave treatments have been used for many, many years for things like kidney stone breakage and also for orthopedic treatments for joints and muscles and tendon repair. And so that's now translated into our field for erectile dysfunction and female sexual dysfunction. And it also translates into that. It's just wonderful, the things that are, on, that, that are on the horizon for erectile dysfunction and other entities that we treat in urology. One common myth Dr. Gabal finds herself confronting often in terms of ED is that it only affects older adults. And there's a little visual that I have, but this is a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, a 50-year-old, and then a 60-year-old. She spread her hand out wide in front of her. Her palm was facing her chest and her fingers spread apart, and her thumb was at the top, representing a 20-year-old with a penis that's nearly vertical, it's so erect, almost bending backward. Once you reach the pinky finger, it's angled down, kind of toward the ground. So it usually is a natural progression, and interestingly, it probably matches to a woman's um, childbearing years and also postmenopausal state. Those are kind of normal. I'm doing air quotes. Those are normal things that happen as we age, but we all know that it's okay to fight things that are normal aging processes. And so there's so many things that we can offer to fight against that, that normal, quote unquote, normal aging process. We always say that a dysfunction is only such if one or both of the partners feel that it is. And so, you know, I have many couples who are in their 50s who aren't interested in sex, and that's fine if both partners are okay with that. And I've got couples in their 90s, you know, who would freak out if they don't have another erection the next day, right? So um, it's very person-specific, and either way is okay. And again, we just have to normalize that it's whatever that, that person, you know, is comfortable with. Back in the very early days of Girl Boner, I interviewed Gabe Deem, a writer and the founder of Reboot Nation, about his experience with porn addiction. He was in his early 20s when, well, using the hand diagram, his erections during sex with a partner were no longer like that straight-up thumb. They were a lot more like the downward pinky. I should mention that porn addiction is a controversial term in the sex ed and sex therapy fields. While some experts use that term, many others prefer terms like sexual compulsions. Personally, I don't care what you call it. If you're struggling, you're struggling. If porn fits healthfully into your life and relationships, great. And if it doesn't, I want you to get all the support you need, 
including with any related erectile dysfunction issues. Here is Gabe's story, starting with a bit of history. He told me he started masturbating to images after finding a Playboy magazine stashed in the bushes when he was eight or nine. He said things escalated a year or two later when his family got cable. He started staying up late until two or three in the morning watching softcore porn. While a lot of that seemed normal to him and he wasn't ashamed, his porn use started to impact his well-being. And that's when I guess you could say it became a problem because I was, you know, neglecting sleep so I could stay up late at night and watch, you know, hours and hours of this stuff. And then it took a real big turn for the worst whenever my family got high-speed internet. That was back in 1999-2000. Now he had unlimited access to high-speed porn. And, you know, I was a seventh grader at the time. I could come home and watch, you know, whatever I wanted to watch for a couple of hours before my parents got home. It wasn't, you know, that big of a deal to me. You know, it was normal. Kids at school were talking about it. What I was watching began to, you know, escalate into more hardcore material. You know, I wasn't just looking at, you know, topless girls. Now I was watching Kane Bang, you know, Deep Throat, all sorts of stuff by the time I was 13. So this carried over into how I started interacting with girls at school. During the sixth grade, he had phone sex with a girl. The stuff I learned from these TV shows, I was trying to get the girls to do them on the phone with me. And then I became sexually active around age 14. And um, this continued through high school and into college. And, you know, my high school was the first high school to get laptops. All the students got issued laptops. One of his classmates, a computer whiz, taught him how to jack off without getting caught. He handed him the tips on a slip of paper. Gabe said that many of his peers learned how to work around the adult content barriers quickly. He recalls watching porn during class. All the while, he still wasn't feeling ashamed of it. It just seemed normal. He just felt he was pursuing pleasure. After he graduated from high school, though, Gabe said things started to change. Um, Going into college, I began to notice, you know, my drive for life decreasing, losing motivation. You know, I didn't care about getting a good job, getting a family, things that used to be important to me. I, I quit basketball. I just really didn't care about anything, but I didn't really notice that. You know, I thought I was just your normal punk kid, but something else caught my attention. And that was when I was around 22 and I uh, was going to have sex with a beautiful girl and I couldn't get an erection. You know, I freaked out. I had no idea what was wrong with me and I blew it off that time. And then another year later, I got with a girl that I really found attractive, real gorgeous, everything I wanted. And again, I couldn't get an erection at all. And so I I started Googling, and it took me about a month, but I found a thread of hundreds and thousands of guys talking about erectile dysfunction, and they were teenagers all the way to 80 years old. What they shared in common was years of porn use and an inability to get an erection with a partner, only from porn. This one guy posted a test to do. He was like, okay, see if you can masturbate without porn. And I hadn't done this in forever. You know, probably the last time I did this was 14 because I always had a PlayStation portable or a laptop or my phone or something to watch porn while I'm at it. So I hadn't done it in a while. And I was like, what? Let me try this. 
He tried it, and he could not get an erection with his hand alone, not without watching porn. And then I even tried using fantasy. I, I was thinking about the freakiest stuff I could think of, you know, stroking myself as hard as I could, and I still couldn't even get, you know, a slight semi-erection. And that was when it all hit me. I realized that porn was the cause, and I broke down crying. During my Google search, you know, I, I was searching all over the place, and all I could find was, if you're young and you can't get it up, you're just nervous. It's performance anxiety. But he knew that wasn't the case. He felt confident and had had a lot of sexual experience. Plus, he had no reason to perform for anyone when he was by himself. He just couldn't get a heart on without porn. Once he realized that, he dove into educating himself. While doing so, he found a website, yourbrainonporn.com, that features information on the neuroscience behind what he was experiencing. It has all kinds of links to studies. And I was reading about how I sexually conditioned my brain to get turned on by, you know, a screen and also, you know, numbed my reward circuit in my brain, which there's actually some evidence now that that's the case. He did what's called a reboot, where you give up porn for some amount of time to get back to being able to be aroused by a physical person. He told me he went cold turkey and experienced some withdrawal. And others in a similar place have asked him, how could he give up porn so quickly after being so dependent on it? I guess to get real sentimental and on an emotional level, being a, I was a 23-year-old guy at the time, and having a girl that I love about, or I love and I care about, and just that feeling of her trying to give me an erection, doing everything she can, and just seeing no response in my penis, and just seeing that tear well up in her eye, thinking that it's her when I knew that it wasn't her, like that feeling was such a kick in my gut that I just, I guess you could say I hit rock bottom. You know, once I realized that, you know, I screwed myself up by watching all this porn, that was when I really had that heart change and I no longer desired porn. At first, he kept his dependency on porn a secret from his girlfriend at the time. But when he finally told her, he said she was so relieved to understand that it wasn't her. She wasn't causing his erectile problems. He told her he had, quote, wired his brain to pixels and not people. Thankfully, he was able to change that. Gabe is now married, and he and his wife are celebrating the birth of their first baby. I mentioned Gabe's experience to Dr. Gabal and asked her about her own take on erectile dysfunction related to porn use. So the brain is the biggest sexual organ that we have, right? And I just think it's fascinating how much control our brain has over our bodies physiologically. And the more that we learn, we realize the more that we don't understand about these things. And that's why I love, I love medicine because every day we just learn more and more about how things work and at least how we think things work and how we can maybe fix those things that are broken. She shared an example of something she learned recently through the Olympics that she feels really speaks to this. I thought it was super interesting that um, when Simone Biles, you know, came out because of her mental health, I learned from some physicians 
they are called performance doctors. So they specialize in performance medicine, which is something I'd never even heard of. And so one of the things that they talked about is that athletes, when they do a repetitive motion, there is actually a pathway that overdevelops in the brain. And they can get stuck in that repetitive motion, she said, because the nerves in the brain are being rewired. And then the natural instinct is to do more of that repetitive motion when really that works against you when you're trying to break something like um, they were talking about her having the twisties. Simone Biles told reporters and fans that the, quote, twisties made it impossible for her to tell up from down. There really is some physiologic evidence to why this happens. So there is a physiologic reason for this neurologic pathway that builds In terms of being dependent on porn, Dr. Gabal said, Some people are more visual, some people are more verbal, but but you need something to help to stimulate you. Some people fantasize during intercourse or whatever kind of sex they're having to help them to be able to orgasm. It is very possible to become dependent on that neural pathway. I mean, there's a physiologic reason for it. But in order to break that dependency, you have to kind of get out of that pattern and build new neural pathways. And it's okay to use porn. It's okay to use fantasy. But if it becomes a dysfunction, then I think it is time to to rewire. Other common penis conditions Dr. Gabal sees in her office include balanitis, priapism, paraphimosis, and Pyrone's disease. Before we delved into them, she pointed out why, as a urologist, she is a big fan of circumcision. And I know, again, there's there's a lot of controversy around uh, circumcision or not, but we tend to see a lot of the complications that can happen later in life or even in some pediatric cases for uncircumcised men. And so penile cancer is one thing that happens only in uncircumcised men. Penile cancer accounts for only about 1 in 100,000 penis havers in the United States, according to the American Cancer Society. Among those who are uncircumcised, that number is 1 in 600. We now know that there's also a correlation with HPV. All young people should be vaccinated for HPV, male or female, But especially if a man is not circumcised, it's super important to be vaccinated against HPV because that is the one thing that's been associated with penile cancer. And I unfortunately had a very young patient who presented when I was a resident in his 30s, late 30s with penile cancer, ended up dying. It's not common, but if a man is circumcised, it just doesn't happen. And so, so again, as urologists, you'll find that most of us are very big fans of circumcision. So balanitis, balanopostitis, um, those are inflammatory processes of the penis, the skin or the, uh, you know, the shaft or the head of the penis. And again, more common, 99% of these happen only in uncircumcised men, especially if a man's diabetic, um, they get, they're more prone to infections, yeast infections, really any type of infections at the tip of the penis, at the head of the penis. There's also phimosis and paraphimosis. Why do I feel like these are going to be Jeopardy questions if they haven't been already? Phimosis happens when the foreskin is too tight to be pulled back over the head of the penis. 
This can stem from repeated inflammatory problems from balanitis or balanopostitis. The dangerous form of phimosis is called paraphimosis, when a tight foreskin becomes trapped behind the head of the penis. Where it can actually strangulate the head of the glands, and, and that's an emergency. They have to go into the emergency room to have that reduced, to have the, the foreskin brought back down. So these are not uncommon things that we see in our practice um, as urologists. And again, we're probably a little bit biased because we see the complications. We don't see the normal uncircumcised penises. And I'm sure there's many, many of those out there. But these are things that happen in uncircumcised men. Then there's priapism, a condition in which an erection lasts and lasts and lasts. It sounds like a good thing. It's not you know, to have an erection for four hours. And um, it is something that is, it's one of the few urologic emergencies where the men would have to go to the emergency room and then be injected with different medications to try and get the erection to go down because not only is it very painful, well, the most common type of priapism is what's called low flow priapism, which is venous. And it's very painful. The, the blood becomes stagnant. It actually clots. The biggest risk is if it's not attended to very early is that um, they can get erectile dysfunction because the, the, the corporate cavernosa will completely scar down and they can no longer get blood flow to the penis for an erection. So priapism is an emergency. It's not uncommon in this age where, you know, people might get medications online. I remember a time um, not that long ago where I had a patient who took his partner's medication. His partner was prescribed an injection for his erectile dysfunction, so they decided to share it. The problem was the dosage was incorrect. So he had a painful erection that would not let up. He went to see Dr. Gabal in the middle of the night. She treated it with injectable medications. The moral of that story is don't share your ED medications. Only take them under a doctor's care. Another very common condition that penis havers struggle with is premature ejaculation, or PE. It's characterized by three main symptoms, always or nearly always ejaculating within one minute of penetration, being unable to delay ejaculation during intercourse all the time or most of the time, and or feeling really distressed or frustrated. As a result, you may avoid sexual intimacy. Your desire may go down. If you struggle with PE, or if you just want to stay hard longer, or your partner would like to stay hard longer during sex, I can't recommend Promescent enough. It's a delay spray that won't transfer to your partner or cause numbness that makes sex not fun anymore. It's been shown to increase orgasms. It's long-lasting and easy to use. They have free shipping on all orders over 10 bucks. And all orders shipped are in non-branded packaging to protect your privacy. To save 15% on your first order of Promescent, head to delayspray.com and enter the promo code AUGUST15OFF or click the link down in the show notes to save automatically. Again, that's AUGUST15OFF at delayspray.com. Before I share Don Cummings' story about his experience with Pyrone's disease, I have a question for you. 
When you learned that today's episode features a urologist, were you surprised at all to learn that she's female? If so, don't feel too bad about it. There still are not very many women in the field, so relatively few people encounter one. In a study that looked at 9,600 urologists in the U.S., researchers at Northwestern University found that only about 8 to 12% are women. Dr. Gabal has wanted to help change that ever since she discovered the path for herself. You know, believe it or not, I did not grow up thinking I was going to be a urologist. You know, my parents would tell me we came here to the U.S. for better opportunities for you. And I, I kind of knew that my destiny was to go to medical school, but I loved every single rotation that I did. And I, okay, now I'm going to be a pediatrician. Now I'm going to be this, now I'm going to be that. Urology was literally her last rotation in her third year in medical school for surgery. She wanted to take plastic surgery and ENT, ears, nose, and throat, for her two specialty electives. And she ended up with plastic surgery and urology. And I said, what the heck is this? Who wants to be a urologist? I don't even know what they do. I tried to trade it. I tried to give it to, you know, no one wanted to take it. They didn't know what they did. And so I ended up doing this as a rotation and absolutely loved it. And, you know, urologists are generally kind of fun people. We have good sense of humor. It was a, a really good blend of medicine and surgery. A lot of people don't realize that we're, you know, urologists or surgeons. It's a surgical specialty. It's a long residency. It's six years. The other thing is that it, there really needed to be more women. And, and that's what I saw when I was there. Obviously, very male-dominated field. Um, people think of urology specifically as a male gynecologist, I think. It, it's really not. I mean, we treat bladder cancer, kidney stones. When she started in the field, women accounted for only 4% of urologists. So that number has at least doubled since then. And there are so many benefits to that. So I tell my male patients, it's good to have a female urologist. We have smaller fingers than the guys. So it's good for the rectal exam, right? I think most people just want a good physician, a good surgeon. Most people don't really care the gender. I, I would think most people don't care the gender of their physician. And, and, and it's just nice to have a choice if you do care, because a lot of, for a lot of years, women did not have the choice to see a female anything. And now, you know, if you, if you really do have a preference, that there are people you can choose from. When Don Cummings spotted the signs of Pyrone's disease, he sought out a good physician pretty quickly. We spoke about his experience in the studio a couple of years ago, back when his memoir, Bent But Not Broken, released. Here is much of that conversation, which I think really highlights the emotional toll these types of conditions can take, the ways they can impact intimacy and relationships, and the importance of committing to effective treatment. We started by talking about the first signs of the disease he noticed. You know, men often have erections when they're sleeping. And especially if you have to urinate, a man will get an erection which will hold the urine better or something. I don't know. but. I started noticing that at night, like I'd wake up in the middle of the night and my erections just hurt, like a hurt that was like, what was the pain like? It was like somewhat burning and constricting and like sore. Sounds like a bladder infection almost. Yeah, yeah, it was, but, but, it, but it wasn't in the urethra, it was in the tissue. Mm. So it felt like 
What would it be like? Like, like if you overworked out something, maybe? I don't know. It was like really sore and tender and it didn't feel right. And that was gone for a bit. And I go, what is this? And I thought, oh, it's just some pain. And, and, and sometimes in life, it is best to ignore pains. They go away. And then a few weeks in, I noticed that my penis at the top started bending to the right. And because I do have a, a background in knowing about diseases and things because of my degree or this or that or being interested, I knew I had Peyronie's disease. Did you have a sense of, oh, this is treatable, not treatable, that kind of stuff? You know, I didn't know. And I, and I didn't know exactly what caused it. I didn't know how this happened. I figured I had something to do with inflammation, you know, but I, I no, I, 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 the doctor kind of clued me in yeah. as to, you know, the very specifics of, of how this happens to you. I remember when I was reading your book from the time that you noticed the symptoms, you didn't go in immediately, but I think, was it within like two months or something? Two months, yeah. And when I saw that, I thought, how could you wait two months? And then you went in and the doctor said, it's so good you came in so quickly. Yeah. Because typically it takes a much longer time. Yeah. As the doctor said, he said, gay men who have Peyronie's disease come in sooner than straight men because gay men are more identified with their penises. Um, yeah. Yeah. Guys will wait for a really long time. They'll, as a matter of fact, they'll wait so long that, that it can't be treated. How it works is there's some sort of injury. Maybe it's just repeated small. It might be the way you have sex. You might hit the same spot over and over again. I think that's, in my theory, that's more what it's like. Like, oh, I'm... I'm just doing this certain way, and it's kind of just hitting that spot, and it's like just getting messed up, you know. Some people do, like you talk about, you know, penis fracture, but but there could be uh, something where you, you, you have a really harsh sex night, and you can get, like, hurt. Maybe not a full fracture, but hurt, you know. I don't think that happened to me. I think mine might have been from more repetitive motion. But what happens is you get scar tissue, just like you would get scar tissue from anything. And then it, it sandwiches there between your erectile tubes, the corpora cavernosa, and the outer layer, which is called the tunica albuginea. So if scar tissue calcifies, it's much more difficult to treat. Mm. So that's why I said, if you get Peyronie's disease, get it taken care of, you know, ASAP. So, because they, yeah. while, while, the, while it's still soft, while the scar tissue is still soft, they can treat it and kind of open it up, get it more pliable turn it from, you know, cheddar to Swiss, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And the treatment process is very interesting. It sounds like there's not like a one-size-fits-all treatment, right? And you went through multiple different forms. Mm -hmm. The first one, talk about that. I believe it involved the injections. Yeah. So in in, in my case, so so Zyaflex, I think it's pronounced Zyaflex, 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 XIA, it was not approved by the FDA yet, so I, that was not available to me, and that is what they're using these days. But I was treated with something called verapamil. Verapamil is actually a blood pressure medication. It was not made for Peyronie's disease, but someone figured out that if you mix verapamil with saline, put it in a needle, go under the skin of the penis, go in there and just kind of break up that scar tissue with this needle saline of verapamil, and they first obviously numb you you know, with lidocaine. And the, and the first shot, you know, they give you the base of the penis. They numb you. And then they go in there with the needle. They'll go in there and kind of do 30 or 40 bangs with this needle with the verapamil and the saline. It's interesting. They go in just one hole in your penis. And my, my plaque was toward the top, toward the end, toward my penis head. So they go in with the needle just in one place. And then they kind of just move it in many directions. Because once you get under the penis skin, it's kind of open up in there, you know, and you can just kind of go. So they 
stab around and just keep squirting, stabbing, squirting, stabbing and break it up. And you were watching, I imagine. I think I would have to look away myself. Let me see. Yeah, sometimes I peeked. But it actually wasn't that freakish to watch because there wasn't anything much. There's a needle there. Like those treatments would take about eh, 15 minutes. You know what I mean? That's a long time to just sort of be sitting there having someone, you know, stabbing around in there. Maybe. Maybe it was 10 minutes, but felt like 15, you know, whatever. Yeah, and then you were bandaged up and you'd have bruising and all that. Was it a painful recovery process in between? Yeah, well, so I went every two weeks. It was bruised looking because if you go under the skin and do something like this, you get bruised. But it didn't really hurt that much, honestly. That's good. It really didn't. I mean, it was, as a matter of fact, I I was so relieved I was getting the treatments that once the lidocaine wore off and the numbing wore off about two hours later when I was at home, like, yeah, it (laughs) it felt like someone was in there stabbing around my penis. But it's a small gauge needle. It's not like they're in there with a hacksaw, you know. So, but what I liked was after each treatment, very much, you feel looser. You feel that you have been released some. More than anything, the psychological relief of like, oh, my penis is hanging better. Oh, it's mm. it's more not being pulled up to my body like it was, you know, from the scar tissue. Oh, this feels better. That totally outshined the soreness, which was... Minor, honestly. That's so good because I feel like the pain or prospect of pain would keep Mm -hmm. some people from feeling comfortable getting the treatment. So I think that's really good to know. Talk about the andropenis because that was really fascinating to me, this stretching of the penis, essentially. Sure, sure. I mean, there are many companies. My doctor recommended the andropenis um, because he said it worked well. I still have it. And I actually still use it one hour a day as I read The New Yorker in the morning. Uh, it's, It's basically this crazy thing where... At the base is like a donut, a plastic donut thing. And then these two extender rods that are on, they're on spring action. And you can add these little half centimeter discs to, the, um, to these rods to make them longer and longer over time. But you start with no longer than how your penis is erect at that time because prone disease does shorten your erection some. So, so you start at that distance and you put it on and what it does, it's like it's basically like a traction device. So it's pulling your penis in a straightforward motion so it's not leaning to the right or the left or up towards your belly. So you, you start for a couple of weeks just regular. You don't even feel it. And then after two weeks, you add a half a centimeter. And then you do that for a couple of weeks and you add a half a centimeter. Now in the early, I mean, you, if you can wear the thing eight hours a day, it's almost impossible to do that. You just, life's too difficult to do that. But in the early part, I was wearing it like six hours a day. I do three hours in the morning and three hours at night. Watch, I did it. I was so diligent because, you know, it really helps and it really works. And and what you're doing is you're stretching the scar tissue. Mm-hmm. It's really what's mostly happening. And again, you'd wear it and you definitely felt looser and better, you know, once once you had your tr- your daily treatment, you know. Yeah. But it's quite a commitment, I have to say. Most guys I talk to who they get some, you know, penis or another brand penis stretcher. Like, I've talked to guys who are just like, oh, God, I, I just, how do you have the time? What are you doing? I was like, I don't have a normal job. I'm a freelance guy. I had the time and also the, you know, complete and utter motivation. The will and determination, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, the, the protocol works, so why not do it? I remember reading in your book about your concerns over your partner's sense of loss. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How impactful was that on your own psyche? Yeah, that was the most difficult part, actually. Um, you know, 
So, so, so it's a double thing going on, right? It's just me and there's him. So there's his reaction and there's my reaction. My reaction is I'm feeling like I'm depleted. I have less. I'm not who I was. Um, I'm less attractive now and I'm less valuable in bed. I mean, really, it was that simple. It was that mercenary. And then for, for Adam, you know, his loss was like, you know, and Adam likes me, you know, I'm more of the top, you know, in the gay parlance here. Actually, in the straight parlances are top and bottom. Anyway, you know, I'm Just more sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. So, so I'm more the top. So that was off the table for a little while while I was being treated, and I would say that was off the table for around nine months. You know, maybe nine or ten months. Um, and we didn't know if it was. I mean, it's it's back, but we didn't know if it was coming back. And it led to a lot of problems. It ended up bringing up other issues, but but getting back more specifically to what you were asking, I mean. I mean, psychologically and, you know, my, my mood was brought way down. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was very upset. I'm not a depressive in general in life. If, if, if I had to, like, say I was, I was more one or the other between depression and anxious, I would say I'm more of a kind of anxious, go get him kind of guy. Um, so I wasn't depressed, but I was actively miserable. Mm-hmm. I was like an, I was an actively miserable person, which maybe saved me from clinical depression. But I just kind of hated living. I did. I did. I felt like, why bother? You know, I'd, I'd look at, you know, marble tile in my bathroom and go like, I just want to become part of the wall. I felt that I was going through a transition. I didn't know how it was going to end. And I started thinking, we're, we're heading for the worst here, you know. And for Adam, he stayed in there with me. But you know how in a relationship, like, you'll be saying one thing on the outside, but inside you're doing something else? Well, that's what he did. So he was he was very supportive. But internally he started pulling away from me he did and we actually did get into an almost breaking up situation and i you know took a sort of balance sheet look at my life and i figured well if this happens and we break up you know i will um i'll carry on my penis will get and actually when we got close to the breaking up thing my penis was in in a better shape he waited till I was about three quarters done with this. And he and it was rough. And he'll admit it. And it wasn't very nice on his part. And he did say, I, be, I feel terribly guilty breaking up with you because you have Peyronie's disease. But then, you know, we, we had gotten to in our own relationship points in the past before all this happened where we come to like breakup points, you know, where it was like, I hate you. I hate you. You don't touch me. You don't love me. I don't know, what's wrong with you? Why don't you close the cabinet? You know, why don't you make more money? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And it's that that all resentful shit that happens in relationships. So it was like the same old shit kind of piled up, you know, at this time again, Came too. Came to the fore, like yeah, everything kind of same, together. Same, it was like broken record thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how I diffuse it was like, listen, this is the thing. This is our relationship problem that, that repeats itself. And, you know, and I, and I looked at him and he had just, he had had a few years before that, he had a horrible... Uh, skin cancer on his face and he lost like half his nose and they had to redo it and it was just like listen dude (laughs) it's like i was there for you well and also when things are going to happen to us yeah as you get older things are going to happen like you hang in there yeah or or like what something else is going to happen this isn't it it's life something else is going to happen and you don't wish it on anyone but let's be realistic here i mean look at you look at your parents look at anyone who's you know older than you Look at people who are younger than you. <laughs> you know, things happen. Right, right. Yeah. So that's the nature of, of relationships. Yeah. We go through so, hard times and you you pulled through and actually got officially married after that, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is really awesome. We did, yeah. I, I imagine with 
Peroni's disease contributing to that whole kind of volcano of things, that a, a big part of it must have been the emotional impact on you, mm-hmm. you know, not just the changes in sex, but also I think it's challenging to mm-hmm. go through the emotional lows with a person. Are you talking more him or about, more about me? I guess between both of you, because yeah, I feel like yeah. it, there's almost like there's the physical part of Peroni's disease, yeah. and then the emotional part is like a whole other illness almost. Not illness, but it's, yes. it's this whole other set of symptoms. Yeah, and depending on how your psyche is formed, right? I mean, for me, I definitely identified with being sexual and being attractive and knowing that I could go to a convention in a hotel and someone would like me and we'd go hook up, you know. I liked all that. So that is loss. And then I felt, yeah, I felt, I just felt just a general bad about myself. I was just not going to be as desired, you know. And I think also, look, I was an actor. I mean, obviously I was someone who liked to be watched and listened to. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not so even proud of that stuff. But definitely I'm someone, for whatever reason, who enjoyed attention. Got attention, enjoyed attention, and... I was really upset that that was, I perceived that that was going away. And, and it did, and truthfully, it did go away. So I was very, very, um, again, like I said, I was, I was actively miserable. And were you getting <laughs> any sort of emotional support or did your doctor say, it's also good to see a therapist through this process? You know, he, he didn't say that. And I was not seeing a therapist at that point. But actually, after everything, I started seeing a therapist because... I was also in New York. The reason why we were back in New York, you know, we live here, but we were back in New York because I was in the middle of a career thing where I had a play. So Meryl Streep, lovingly enough, did a reading of a play of mine at the public theater. And her son, uh, Henry Wolf, who's a musician and an actor, he was in the play. And that's how that all happened. Amazing experience. So my play, I was with CAA. My play was optioned for Broadway. This is all happening. I'm going to Broadway, man. And um, it died. It just died. Like, the reason we moved to New York died. So I went to New York with my perfect penis to be this big Broadway playwright. And instead, what I got was, wah, wah. You know, I got messed up penis, and the play didn't happen. And I was hired to also write a screenplay, and that didn't go into, like, things just were not happening. Mm. So then, so adding to my act of misery was, like, bad penis, career failing it again, you know, so I was just like, this is just all too much. I couldn't find anything really kind of good about my situation. And finally, I just had to go see a shrink. So yeah, and and interestingly, after all was said and done, the emotional issues, because everyone has their base emotional problem, mine turned out to be, you know, surprising the attention and stuff. Uh, You know, my deepest one was abandonment. That's my deepest thing. And so, and there it all came up. In a way, it was a good lesson. Like, the Broadway people were abandoning me. My husband, you know, my future husband was, was abandoning me. Uh, my penis was abandoning My body was abandoning me. Like, everything wasn't staying with me. And we moved uh, from Midtown, actually, up toward, up toward Fort Tryon Park, way northern Manhattan. Beautiful up there. Lots of plants and skunks and stuff. And we moved, and it was fun. It was a good move. It was a great apartment. I remember I was, like, walking around the little village up there, the little town up there, and I'm just, like, sobbing. But there was something about this visceral, complete and utter abandonment, kind of like Tom Hanks in Big, when he's left in New York at, mm-hmm. at the, you know, when he's in a room and he's like terrified. I think my childhood whatever came uh. up, full-blown abandonment, but it was good. And that actually happened when I, I was in therapy for a few months. Like my therapist was good and he sort of 
He just, you know, like therapists, a good one will do. The issue was forced. And I had to face this like monster abandonment that and I had in my psyche. Healing almost from like a healing opportunity from all of this stuff coming up. Yeah, I really did. So that was the silver lining of the Peronis disease. It was like one of, it was the biggest one of, of all that was happening to me because I've dealt with so much rejection in the past anyway. But, but the penis one was just, it was like outrageous. Mm. It was so like, you were able to yeah. start that healing process before you knew if you would be as healthy as you are? and um, Because the doctor stuff got me back to about 75, 80%. That was around when I started seeing the therapist. So I was starting to transition into a better mood or getting to some sort of acceptance. You're in a much better place now with with all of this. Um, Would you speak to the rewards of this whole journey in addition to the emotional benefits that you just talked about Mm -hmm. treatment-wise and Peroni's disease-wise? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess I'll just be really specific about it. Um, My penis bent to the right and then to the left and then curved upward. It kept changing shape. And and this is kind of often happens with, uh, with, with Peroni's disease. My penis is now almost straight. Uh, it curves a teeny bit upward now toward my stomach when it's erect, but a lot of penises do that, so it's no big deal. It doesn't look abnormal. It works really well, I would say. I don't know that it's any shorter because because it's slightly curved. I guess if you'd measure it, it seems a little shorter because it's curved, but it's probably around six inches still. Maybe it's five and three quarters, you know? But really, no, the curve is not bad. It's a little bit up toward my belly. Um, it's My penis is almost back to its original thickness because the other thing about Peronis disease is you get constriction. So your your penis will become less thick. It kind of thins out, which girth. is a bummer. Yeah, you lose girth. There you go, girth. I would say that's at 97%. I mean, that really came back. Interestingly, the, the andropenis, the penis stretcher, it doesn't only stretch, it actually ends up by the tension of stretching giving you girth again. And they talk about that. So that's really good. Uh, sexual function, you know, you can lose some sexual function from this. Basically, I'm fine. I do not need even to take Viagra or anything like that. If we're just, you know, doing basically oral or hands sex. But when it does come time, if I want to be the top and I really want to, you know, do some insertion, I take 10 milligrams of Viagra and there is this like, no question, it works beautifully. And I'm in my 50s. Lots of guys in 50s are popping 10 milligrams of Viagra. Pop it, go, and about 40 minutes after, it's ready, and it, you know, it's working. It's working great. Find Don's book, Bent But Not Broken, a memoir, most anywhere books are sold. He told me he's currently working on a novel, a love story that takes place during the formation of a gun-free nation. You can sign up for his newsletter at doncummings.net and follow his graphic novel about zombies taking over Los Angeles on Instagram at ohthehorrorla. Learn more about Dr. Lamia Gabal's work at drgabal.com and more about Gabe Deem's work at rebootnation.org. For bonus content for this episode, including what Dr. Gabal learned early on about sexuality, and her advice for aspiring female urologists, or really any woman or non-binary person in a male-dominated field, join my community at patreon.com slash girlboner.
I would love to have you join me and get access to bonuses like that one and many more. You can also support the show by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes and telling your friends about it. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. 